I tell you, if there were 17,000 people in the stands last year, then there were not 16,500 in the stands this year. Or at least, uh, if so, about uh, 1,300 of them came disguised as empty hillside. <laughs> That's a pretty funny. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate, once again, you downloading us and giving us a listen as we are now in week four of the 2016 Division Three football season. This is the Around the Nation podcast for September 26th of 2016. And yeah, a lot of focus on the Tommy Johnny game on Saturday. And if, if you've never heard the term Tommy Johnny game, uh, I don't know if I can explain it to you in 30 seconds. It's the game between St. Thomas and St. John's. Lots of other games that happened as well. However, we'll talk about those. I know we didn't give them a lot of coverage, say, in quick hits on Friday because everybody thought the place to be was at Clemens Stadium on Saturday as uh, we bring in Keith McMillan. And uh, Keith, I know you've been to Clemens Stadium, uh, haven't been there for 16,000 people or 14,000 or however many people were actually there. Um, you know, of course, attendance in Division Three is an inexact science, even if, uh, you know, even if you say you're counting. Uh, it just doesn't, it, it, it's hard to tell if you don't have a, a paper ticket. Paper tickets are probably uh, passe now anyway, right? People are scanning uh, Eventbrite uh, something on their smartphones. I don't even know. Yeah, it's probably something like that, Pat. It's, uh, unless you have the perimeter secured, it, it's, it's definitely hard to count. And uh, as you mentioned, there's Hillside at uh, Clemens Stadium. So yeah, it, it is pretty hard to count. But what isn't hard to, to discern is that it's a, it's a wild atmosphere. They always have, um, no, no matter which field they play at, they always have end zone seating where the students are there. So you see the, the touchdown score and then you see uh, one side or the other going crazy. So it's really a great atmosphere for, for D3 football. Although you did kind of spoil it, Pat, right? Because if you're still calling it the Tommy Johnny game, that means we know who won. <laughs> and it's interesting. So, yeah, we have uh, long here at D3Sports.com gone with the, uh, uh, I guess, the the MO that uh, your big rivalry games are supposed to be named by uh, the winner first. So in this case, uh, it's been the Tommy Johnny game for a, a little while now, uh, a few games in a row. Um, but this one has always been kind of the Tommy Johnny game as opposed to in basketball where the Hope-Calvin rivalry could be called the Calvin-Hope rivalry and Amherst-Williams could go back and forth. This one's always been uh, been termed this way. And uh, it was another, of course, it was another great crowd on Saturday. Uh, regardless of where it fits in the uh, uh, all-time attendance lexicon, and we're the ones that are uh, the only people maintaining the unofficial record of uh, Division Three attendance because the NCAA doesn't keep it. And you know, we talked about what attendance uh, is like as an actual figure. Um, but talking about the game for a little bit, uh, this year's game, Keith, a lot like uh, both of last year's games. Remember the. Uh, St. Thomas and St. John's met in the regular season, and then they met again in the playoffs. And uh, yep, both times uh, kind of uh, you know a couple of turnovers early. St. Thomas got out to a lead. St. John's got back into it, and it was not particularly different on Saturday. One of the things that I did think was different, though, Keith, was uh, you know in the past, uh, at least St. John's recently has had the threat of a running game, even if it hasn't been necessarily effective against St. Thomas. You always had the uh, the uh, potential for Sam Surra to pound out a few yards. And other than a couple of big long runs, 
on Saturday. I think 54 of the 83 runs, uh, 54 of the 83 rushing yards came on two plays, and the other 31 carries went for a total of 29. Things a little bit different uh, between for both St. Thomas and St. John's this season. Yeah, and, and that's you know kind of the the fun of uh, getting to watch this game rather than just talk about which team belongs in the top five or top ten based on what they had coming back. And, uh, you know, the the quarterback situation changed for, for both teams, so we didn't – I don't think we knew how that was going to play out. And uh, you, as you mentioned, that running game, Pat, it, it happens that way sometimes, and sometimes teams are built to, to run the ball over the course of the game and then break those long runs late. But uh, but on Saturday, you know, those, those 29 carries or the 31 carries that went for 29 yards – obviously uh, indicated that that St. John's running game was was pretty well bottled up. And on the other side, the St. Thomas running game was a big question. Uh, I wouldn't say coming into the game necessarily, although it wasn't clear, uh, you know, what... you know how much Jordan Roberts would play. He hadn't played against Carlton the week before, but you can hold out uh, your best running back against Carlton uh, in the MIC if you're one of the top contenders. Um, but you know, Roberts didn't even dress. So shortly before the game, you know when people are scanning the sidelines looking for his number, not finding it, then the question turns to who's going to be the guy. And it turned out to be, of course, Tucker Treadle, who's a, if a name you might be familiar with if you followed really closely last year. He was the backup to Roberts last year. He got the start on Saturday. Josh Parks, it's probably not a name you're familiar with. And uh, rather than me talk about them, I'm going to have uh, Glenn Caruso talk about them here. I had an opportunity on Thursday night, and not saying we're the Patriots, but I had an opportunity <laughs> to watch them win a convincing game with their third-string quarterback because the culture is such that you have depth, and when given an opportunity, you're prepared and ready, and that's what our running back stable is right now. Josh Parks, phenomenal. Tucker Treadle, phenomenal. A guy that you will not write about ever, but who's it back there who does a great job is Jeremy Molina. He's like Dom Tricolo and some of those other guys. He does all the, the yeoman's work, but very impressive. Treadle, 21 carries for 79 yards and a touchdown. Josh Parks, 15 for 109 and two scores. Parks, I'm going to be real brief about this, but it's a really interesting story that maybe as the uh, season continues, we might have a chance to delve into. But this is a guy who uh, uh, tried to walk on at the University of Minnesota. uh, And then uh, last year, he uh, was in preseason camp with St. John's. um, And I don't know. You know, you could think about all sorts of backstory or other reasons or, you know, if you saw Sam Sura ahead of him for one more year and didn't think he fit in or whatever, he ended up uh, leaving camp before the season started. So before he used a year of eligibility um, and was just taking classes, I think, back at the University of Minnesota. Um, So, you know, Parks's uh, roommate is one of the guys who uh, transferred in to St. Thomas as a quarterback this year. And so he followed him to St. Thomas and I was very impressed with, uh, with parks. You know, parks was probably a guy who uh, belonged in division three in the first place. It was not going to be, uh, certainly was not going to be um, a, a big 10 running back, uh, but uh, it looked pretty good on Saturday, 15 carries for 109 yards, uh, broke off a, a 46 yarder, at the uh, end of the game that sealed it for St. Thomas. And, and Keith, we were talking about this guy during the game and after the game. You know, one of the things that uh, we always remember, you and I remember, is that these guys end up with teams in Division Three because they had relationships with coaches that were formed during the recruiting process. So, 
you know, a, a, a guy is probably not going to go from, you know, preferred walk-on status at a Division One school to just some random Division Three school. It's probably going to be with a coach who recruited him back out of high school. Yeah, I would say that's true. And, uh, you know, being a winner is really helpful as well. So if you're going to go somewhere, you know, you go somewhere with a strong tradition like St. John's, like St. Thomas. But I, I, th- I think uh, maybe something that gets overlooked or something that's hard to quantify is uh, is not everybody feels comfortable at the school they originally choose. You know, some of the best players right now in D3 are players who started out somewhere else and, and have ended up uh, at great D3 programs, whether it's Sam Riddle, whether it's uh, Jordan Roberts. And now, you know, you talk about the the transfer quarterbacks uh, or the transfer players for St. Thomas and the transfer quarterback um, at, at St. John's. Uh, there, there are you know, quite a few players that uh, for whatever reason don't um, don't fit in or don't land or don't get a starting job or you know other reasons move back home could be money could be being homesick so many other uh, factors but uh, but yeah once you find that place that you feel like you fit in uh, this kind of almost blends in with what with what uh, Coach Caruso is saying too once you find a place or a role on a team even if your role is that is kind of a glue guy kind of role once you're there it, it's hard to leave. You know, I remember kind of at a point in my career where, um, you know, I wasn't starting and I thought I should be and I and I wanted to go somewhere else and play. And I had all these schools back in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. You know, I was in Virginia at the time thinking I could just go back somewhere, uh, open that shoebox of of places I got letters from. So, like you said, you know, you go back to someone you you had a connection with previously. And what ended up happening is I, I was just too comfortable at the school and it worked out fine for me. I stayed and I ended up starting as a junior instead of as a sophomore, you know, and, and here we are today. But, you know, I think a, a lot of, of, of what you said and what Coach Caruso said, it really rings true is that, you know, you, 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 you build relationships and you may not fit in at your first school. So you go back to a, a relationship or, or someone that, you know, and once you find a, a role for yourself, um, you know, your, your career may not be what you thought it originally would be. I think of um, what was Booker Stanley from from Whitewater. Yep. He, he, beca- he, he you know, became a feel good story. <clears throat> Excuse me for for D for Whitewater one year in D three as a guy who kind of flamed out at at uh, Wisconsin Madison, um, but but you know in the end you feel good about your career you're happy you have a role and uh, and and you get to participate in in games like Saturday at uh, Clemens Stadium. I'm now trying to picture Keith as a defensive back from Albright, and then I'm adding another win to Catholic's total in 1996 from the game that you didn't then. Uh, intercept Kevin Ricca four times, but uh, that's another story. For that's, I'm impressed that you remembered Albright was one of my my uh, other top choices. <laughs> you Albright was good then too. That would have been uh, you probably could have intercepted Kevin Ricca in week eleven instead of in week six or something like that. Well, not to get too far off on a tangent, We're way but Albright. Far off. Um, Albright, I think I would have probably played wide receiver at Albright, so that would have been a whole different. Uh, it would have been a whole different career. We'd have two offensive guys or. Or no defensive guys on the podcast, and, and you wouldn't be able to throw it to me whenever we needed uh, to go defensive. Brian Snyder needed you, and now we're going to move on. Uh, but we're not going to move on too far. You talked about Jackson Erdman, the transfer quarterback for St. John's, uh, and he'd had a really good start to the season. Uh, but you know, having faced uh, you know not as top flight competition as he got from the St. Thomas defense on Saturday, where uh, the Tommies uh, handed him his first four sacks of the season. 
uh, picked him off twice his first two interceptions of the, of the year. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who's a freshman. He was a, uh, a preferred walk-on at Penn State. Came back uh, to Division Three. He was 15 to 25 passing for 245 yards. Uh, but I talked to uh, Michael Alada, senior cornerback for St. Thomas, about Erdman, and uh, here's what he had to say. Well, we knew he hadn't been sacked all uh, season, so that was added motivation for us. And uh, yeah, we just wanted to get after him. Uh, I commend him. He's done a great job so far this season. He's on point with his receivers. They made a lot of checks. Um, for him to come in here as a transfer and take total control, hats off to him. Keith, for St. John's going forward, they have Bethel next week, uh, You know, a game you would have circled at the beginning of the season, and now has a, a bit of a different uh, tone, I think, for the Johnnies, because you, know, you looked at them on Saturday, uh, we already talked about the woes in their running game. Um, you know, uh, Erdman did pass for 245 yards, 68 of them on one kind of fluke play, a tipped ball that uh, ended up in Evan Clark's hands that he uh, went the distance with. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of mixed and matched parts and maybe a, an offense that hasn't really found its identity yet. Yeah, and it's probably tough after coming off a couple years where the identity was built around Sam Sura. They knew. Um, you know, if it was a third and two, you know, who's getting the ball, you, you know, you want to put, put um, the ball in your best player's hands. Uh, and, and right now they don't have somebody or, or really anything they can hang their hat on. You look at the box score from Saturday, leading receiver, three catches, um, you know, a bunch of guys caught balls, but only one, two or three catches, not really anyone that, that they can really uh, go to in crunch time, leading rushers, Dusty Kruger with 12 carries for 15 yards. Uh, not, not leading rusher by yardage, obviously, but um, but I mean, you just don't have a, a guy like they had Sam Sura, which sometimes that works out fine. But I think maybe early on, as you transition to a team that that has a lot of weapons and you spread it out, and then you you go against uh, a great defense like like the Tommies have, uh, it could be tough. So yeah, you know, we'll take a look at that that Bethel game next week and see if the Johnnies can start to uh, develop a little bit more of an offensive identity. We're going to hit a bunch of the other big games from uh, this past week as we go on through the podcast. Um, before we go to break, I wanted to talk about uh, one of the other ones that, uh, you know, is a uh, one that uh, got circled. Uh, certainly got circled in quick hits. Uh, it's basically the game that has been deciding the Centennial Conference for the past several years, and that is uh, the one between Johns Hopkins and Muhlenberg. Uh, you know, Johns Hopkins uh, wins that game. Uh, as uh, Jack Toner intercepts passes on the past two drives, or the, uh, the last two drives. Ah, copy editor in me always changes last to past, even here where it doesn't make sense. Wait, I still do it too at work, and I may be one of the last ones. <laughs> or the past ones. So um, Nick Palladino, the, the uh, star quarterback for Muhlenberg, came into the game as one of the top uh, passing efficiency passers in Division Three, one of the top uh, tops in completion percentages, and uh, looked pretty good in the first half. Uh, it was 14 for his first 19, and then, uh, as I mentioned, Toner intercepted him on the uh, the final two drives of the game. He was 17 to 31 in the second half, and uh, Muhlenberg uh, not nearly as effective offensively after halftime. No, and you know, if you look at these uh, numbers at the end of the game from Muhlenberg, you think, wow, they had a great day. You know, uh, 492 yards of total offense. They ran 94 plays. And, and Palladino puts up big numbers, but a lot of it was in the in the first half. This game was. Uh, 24-20 at halftime, Muhlenberg led, and, and you know I, they're at home. They surely they felt good about themselves at that point, but uh, but didn't get any points on the board in the second half. And and those, uh, you know, they were still obviously within within striking distance the entire time. The final 30-24, uh, those, those two big 
um, interceptions by our kickoff edition cover boy. There you go. Uh, one of the six, anyway, um, late in the game. Um, obviously, big plays by Jack Toner and you, and you know, for Johns Hopkins, you want your your biggest guys to come up big in crunch time. And for Muhlenberg now, you know, maybe you know they go back and and they're able to run the table and and, and get into the postseason at nine and one. But they have to be uh, kicking themselves because they were in such good position in this game Saturday. And I should mention uh, three interceptions total, the two on the uh, last two drives. A, a tough second half for Palladino. Uh, yeah, it, uh, not to go too deep into Pool C, but we'll just uh, glance and mention that uh, Muhlenberg's uh, non-conference game, the only one you get as a Centennial Conference member, was a win against Wilkes. Wilkes at the moment is 1-3, and three, but uh, if I kind of scan through the schedule, they could probably win four games or so. So, um, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a possibility uh, there's a long way to go, and that was something I heard from a bunch of people on Saturday. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's it's just week four. You've got six or seven games to go. Yeah, and and you know we're kind of the ones who are most guilty of looking too far down the road and, and starting to ponder pool C and 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 strength of schedule. Like, what is this going to mean later? Because that's just what we do. But um, but for Muhlenberg, this is almost like. Uh, if they're able to, to you know, rebound from this and, and go the rest of the way. This is like exactly what Pool C was built for. You look at this box score on Saturday, uh, Hopkins and Muhlenberg, pretty much the exact same game. Total offense was 492, uh, 484. Rushing was 168, 152. They each had six penalties. They each had the same number of turnovers. It was, su- it was such an even game. And, uh, and, you know, obviously it just came down to who made the biggest play there on, on the final two drives. And Muhlenberg, I think as a as a poll voter now, you know, maybe you want to before you give them too much credit, you want to see how they do against a, a established team like Johns Hopkins. This is a, a case where they lost, but now they're they're a little bit more on the radar of the voters. Yeah, lost by the final score of 30 to 24. Coming up in a couple of minutes, we'll talk about uh, Wisconsin Whitewater and Morningside. We'll talk about the Wittenberg Wabash game. Uh, Keith is going to spend a a bit of time on uh, Mount Union, spend some time watching them on Saturday. We'll uh, talk about uh, teams in the top 25, of course, because we do that on a regular basis. And uh, we'll, of course, uh, go off the beaten path. But uh, before we do that, and before we go to break, I'd like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by fill in the name here. You could be uh, reaching an audience full of Division Three football decision makers, coaches who need equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf. That's a million-dollar purchase, right? You want to reach those people, all sorts of things that you can do that by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be saying things about your product right here before we went to break, things that would make people want to buy it. So think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. More than 800 unique listens to our previous podcast just over the past week. This is a thing, and it's a thing you're missing out on. And we're going to jump right into game balls. And uh, Keith, I'm going to give my game ball for week four to Wittenberg senior linebacker Dustin Holmes. He racked up 22 tackles in the Tigers' 24-14 win versus Wabash. Uh, among those tackles, I counted three separate key third down stops that forced Wabash punts, plus he also forced a fumble. Uh, his performance, I thought, was just kind of emblematic of the way the Tigers' defense played, especially over the final three quarters. 
So Little Giants, they come into the game ranked number 13 in the country, picked up 161 yards in the first quarter, but just 116 the rest of the way. And, re and remember, too, uh, this is an emotional offseason for Wittenberg. Uh, there was a car accident in the offseason that took the life of Miles LeBoy, one of their players. Uh, two of the other Tigers student-athletes in the car were projected to be starters on the Wittenberg defense. And uh, being able to get Rashawn Edwards back from injury and on the field is a huge boost in terms of X's and O's, but also morale and just a, a great performance for the Wittenberg defense overall on Saturday. For my game ball, I'm going with B.J. Mitchell, the Mountain Union running back, and his offensive line. Mitchell ran for 259 yards on 32 carries, and the Purple Raiders outrushed Baldwin-Wallace Yellow Jackets 374 to negative 10. Mountain Union ran for 6.7 yards per carry, and Mitchell averaged 8.1. On some of the carries, the holes were so big, I could have gained 4 or 5 yards, probably not 6.7, but uh, and certainly not 8.1. But Mitchell makes a lot of his own yards with shifty, cut-on-a-dime type moves. You're like a foot taller than Mitchell is, by the way. Well, that only helps if I'm getting tackled and falling forward, right? <laughs> there you go. So add, yeah. a, add half a yard. So what makes uh, Mitchell and, and the Mitch Doherty-led line game ball recipients is their value to the Purple Raiders as they figure out who their quarterback is going to be. Right now they're going back and forth between uh, freshman Luke Poorman and another freshman D'Angelo Fulford, both of those guys uh, first-year players from Florida. The running game is buying Mount Union time. And then even though Mount Union has Ohio Northern and Heidelberg next, it doesn't seem like the Purple Raiders will be judged by what they do in the regular season. I still have Mary Harden, Baylor, Whitewater, St. Thomas, each with a win over a top 10 team. Asterisk for Whitewater because there is, is, is a top 10 NAIA team. But uh, I still have those three teams ranked higher because they've played tougher competition so far. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what Mount Union is in week four. It matters what they are in week 14. So... Right now, because they have such a good running game, they can piece the passing game together. And uh, that, that's pretty much what makes uh, Mitchell. And I'm going to name off the, uh, the offensive line starters, right? Because even though it's only one imaginary game ball, they can split it five, six ways. And that's, uh, that's uh, right to left. Um, Matt Fitchett, Cole Parrish on the right side, Mitch Doherty, another uh, kickoff feature person that we featured in kickoff. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know why I botched that. Uh, <laughs> A kickoff feature person. Uh, and then on the left side, Brooks Jenkins and Tyler Rents. Uh, again, you know, three of those guys are starters back from last season. They're Mountain Union's only returning starters on offense. And so, uh, although Bradley Mitchell was a key player before, and, you know, some of the other players have, have played, uh, Tim Kennedy and Jordan Hargrove, those guys. I think that stability that the running game uh, gives them is buying Mountain Union a lot of time. Feature subject, I guess. Yeah, that's probably how you would say it if you were if you were uh, doing it correctly. <laughs> All right. Uh, looking at the top 25 poll, my team on the rise is going to be Utica. I think the Pioneers have done enough to merit at least the significant top 25 consideration they got this week. Going from zero votes to getting into the poll is probably a stretch, uh, but based on what they accomplished, I think they deserve the, the points that they got. Uh, also in my ballot, I swapped out Hobart and swapped in St. Lawrence uh, in a, a spot near the bottom of the poll where I had the Statesman last week. I was kind of just waiting to see the Saints against a team that had won any games at all this season. Yeah, interesting that you were more impressed with, by St. Lawrence this season. I got a chance to watch a little bit of their game against RPI early, and, and it, was, um, it didn't blow me away. Uh, but it, it was the first time St. Lawrence had given up points all season, too. Uh, as far as Utica, I moved the Pioneers into the top 25 myself, but I actually thought Wittenberg 
was the team that made the largest jump because of Saturday's result. For some reason, the Tigers weren't really on the radar in the preseason and uh, or really the first couple weeks of the season. They came from uh, four teams deep into also receiving votes they, and shot up to number 18 after beating Wabash. But you get on the radar when you play somebody else good and you beat them. It's fairly simple, right? Yeah. Mary Harden, Baylor, and St. Thomas and Whitewater all, all benefit from that as well uh, at, at their spots in the poll. And now Wittenberg and Johns Hopkins and a bunch of other low to mid top 25 teams also getting the benefit of that doubt. You know, you before you put too much stock in, in a team that you like in the preseason, you really want to see how they do against another similarly matched team. You know, it's not just being 4-0 and or 3-0 and because there are a ton of teams at this point with that record. It's who you beat. It's who you beat to get there. Team on the fall in the poll. I'm going to talk about a team that uh, we talked already last week, Keith, about reevaluating, and that was Delaware Valley. Uh, and then they uh, they fell, of course, to Albright on Saturday, 20 to 17, and then fell out of the poll from 14th uh, all the way out. They were three poll points away from being in the top 25 there at the bottom. Uh, but you know, again, this is one of those situations where you go back and, and reevaluate, of course, who that they play, right? And they they beat Wesley. Right, which is more impressive than it was. I, 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 we could rehash that whole conversation from last week's podcast, Keith. But basically, uh, Delaware Valley, you know, we could have reevaluated them. Some people did reevaluate them already, but nothing forces you to reevaluate a team like a loss does. Yeah, and and it's the same point we made previously that you want to see. Uh, what teams do against other good teams, uh, Delaware Valley and, and Albright. Albright was a team that, that kind of really needed that win. And, uh, I, you know, it made it made Wabash and DelVal obvious teams that will take a fall after their losses this week. But there are really plenty of teams on my ballot, at least six that won in what I'd call shaky fashion. Uh, St. John Fisher had to rally to win by four. Thomas Moore won by 4-2 against Carnegie Mellon a week after it beat W&J by 26. Wheaton won by 4-2, 10-6 against Elmhurst, and that's uh, three uninspiring wins out of four now for the Thunder. Hobart, guess how many points it beat Union by? Uh, four. Four, yeah. St. Lawrence won by a score. Franklin won by one score. You get the picture. Wins are usually good for top 25 teams, but in this, in this part of the season, uh, when most of the top 10 was so impressive, and St. John's showed enough to remain pretty much where it was, um, spots cleared up around the mid-teens. You know, there's that, that top 10 was kind of locked in. And then I think everybody else, uh, they, they, they just, there just weren't that many teams who impressed enough to automa- automatically move up. So uh, I reevaluated. There's that word again. <laughs> Everything beyond Johns Hopkins uh, got re- reevaluated, and it led to a jumbled ballot. I don't think I can have the same confidence in Wheaton or St. Lawrence or Franklin after this week, even though they all won. There are 51 undefeated teams right now, so I think top 25 spots can and deserve to be fluid week to week or earned and re-earned every week. A win is a win, except when you're comparing 10-6 to to 51-15, that's Stevenson's score, or 41-3, that's Barry, or comparing what John Carroll did against Heidelberg, 42-14, uh, after Heidelberg's huge win the previous week. Yeah, you know, a win is a win, right? That's and you exactly said that. Uh, but man, style points count for something, at least a little bit. You have to, you know, win in convincing fashion against teams that you should win in convincing fashion uh, against. Yeah, I think it's less style points and more 
who you play. And over the course of a 10-game season, maybe you can write off one or two close games. Uh, every couple of years, we get a team that's kind of like a cardiac team, and, and, and we kind of run with it. Um, but other than that, you really have to, you, like you mentioned, Pat, you have to beat the, the teams that you should beat convincingly. You don't get too many free passes when you're looking at all these other teams who also have impressive resumes and there are only 25 spots on your ballot. Later in the season, when there's a bunch of 8-1 and one teams, maybe it'll be a little easier. But right now, you have 51 undefeated teams. You have teams like Linfield that, that have losses or Franklin that, that have a loss. But um doesn't mean they're not top 25 worthy. So it really is uh, quite a job to, to try to wedge or try to figure out who your top 25 is each week. Risers and fallers in the poll to a team that's holding steady, at least for now, and that's UW-Whitewater. Like last year, Warhawks gave up some yards, they gave up some points, but again, they defended the honor of Division Three, defeating Morningside, the number two ranked team in the NAIA, this time by a score of 35-21. to uh, D3Football.com columnist Josh Smith was there, and he brings us some post-game audio from Warhawks coach Kevin Bullis. You know, I think, um, you know, coming into this game, we knew it was going to be a heck of a battle. I mean, Morningside, who's, uh, you know, number two in NAI in the country and their scholarship program, and, and um, we played them last year. It was a dogfight. We, we knew it would be the same thing again. I mean, they, they, they're so explosive, as you saw today. I mean, man, they can, they can gobble up 70 yards in a heartbeat and, and, uh, and in turn play great defense as well. So, I mean, to us, it was just a great opportunity to get ourselves ready for our conference play. I mean, to me, that's the type of team we play in our conference. And, and uh, it was really, we wanted to have a great measuring stick to see where we were at as a team. I mean, we had these visions. As coaches, you go into practice every day, and sometimes you feel like you can't see the forest because of the trees. Does that make sense? So you, but yet you kind of get these inklings. And we're feeling good about this team. We're feeling very good about our team. Um, got a lot of things to work on, but you always do. But. Um, yeah, this game to us was really the confirmation of where we're at right now, uh, and we're feeling good about it, feeling very good about it. I think ultimately, in a nutshell, I think that game ultimately comes down to um, we, we took the ball away from them four times. They, you know, we gave them the ball one time. Uh, I think that ultimately was the biggest difference, was um, the turnovers, the takeaways. Um, those are the things that ultimately tip a game when it's that type of two teams that are very good teams playing each other. Looks like uh, Chris took the majority of the snaps in the, in the second half. Um, yeah. Did he just play himself into more action? You know, I mean, right now we went into the game with the idea of let's play both of them. They both bring something to the table. Does that make something that's different? It's kind of, it's not like they're an apple and an apple. It's kind of an apple and an orange. And so, you, you, you know, there's times when you want that one guy out there and you want, there's other times you want that other guy. At the end there, we felt it was kind of really a game that fit Chris's style. And Chris is the field general. He's the field manager. He's the leader. Whatever you know what I mean. However you want to label that. Um, where Cole is, he's the gunslinger. I mean, he's got a gun on him that, that he can throw a ball that that's pretty special. You, you know what I'm saying? So I mean, and there's different times, different places you want to be able to utilize those guys. So um, you know, first time um, that we've done that here. That, that we kind of try to utilize two guys and, and we'll evaluate it just like we evaluate everything and, and see if that's a direction we continue or, or not. Sure, it was nice for you to see uh, Marcus Hudson kind of get moving a little bit. Today. It was, you know, and getting Marcus back healthy and getting him rolling, I mean, that, that's the key thing. I mean, wide receivers, those guys take such a pounding. They're, 
See, that's the thing. A lot of times people think being a wide receiver is like the easiest, least pounding position. It's actually between them and D linemen. That's wide receivers and D linemen take the most pounding. For D linemen, it's on their body. Um, for for wide receivers, it's on their feet. It's on their legs. I mean, they're, they're constantly. I mean, if you ever watch a wide receiver run route and change directions, it's violent. It's pounding. It's hard, and to do that day in and day out. So to get him back healthy, get him rolling. I mean, he, he brings a breath of fresh air and energy to the team um, offensively. I mean, I, um, I'll say this. I mean, I've coached 27 years, and I say this every time I talk about Marcus Hudson, though, but it's the truth. I've never coached around uh, coached a guy that has the ability to catch a ball with people hanging on him like he does. I mean, he, he can have people hanging on him in traffic. I think it's a combination of strength, it's uh, uh, strength balance, and great uh, discipline, great, great, and you know, staying focused on the ball and not letting that be a distraction. He, he's he's fantastic. And he's a big, strong guy, and it makes sense. Um, but he, yeah, real excited to have him out there. Keith, one of those topics of conversation for Wisconsin Whitewater, same as we talked about with Wheaton last week, uh, the dual quarterback situation. Uh, Cole Wilbur, Chris Nelson going back and forth. Uh, within the same game, at least, Wheaton seems to be rotating an entire game at a time. Uh, but uh, your take on your thoughts on uh, what's going on there with Whitewater. Well, I think for for a handful of teams in the top 25, it's certainly a, a nice luxury to have where the rest of your program is so set that you can tinker at quarterback the same way you would tinker at uh, you know three four defensive end or you know you'd rotate three cornerbacks in until you find your two best cornerbacks. These these teams are doing it at quarterback now uh, on on Saturday. Uh, only one quarterback, Andrew Bowers, all five foot ten and and the 176 pounds of him threw passes for Wheaton. So so as you mentioned, they're it seems like they're settled on the guy if you just look at one box score. But uh, but they but that may not be settled at Whitewater. Wilbur and Nelson are going two series at a time. And Nelson finished Saturday nine of twenty one with four touchdown passes and no interceptions, while Wilbur was only five of fourteen with almost half of his eighty seven yards on one completion. So it would lead you to believe, especially with the experience that 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 Chris Nelson brings, I would lead you to believe that that he pulls ahead in the race. But nine of twenty one, not really a, a great day uh, until you look at oh, four of those nine completions are are touchdown passes. Um, at Mount Union, their uh, their dueling or dual freshman quarterback system that's working, and and I think pretty soon, you know, they they may have one guy emerge. Uh, right now, Luke Porman is is the one who's starting, and maybe he's a little further along in terms of mastery of the offense. Um, and he certainly doesn't look like a bad quarterback at all. His, his numbers are even a little bit better than D'Angelo Fulford. But just strictly off the eye test, uh, Fulford he threw he his ball the the ball just zips out of his hands when he throws it. Uh, he, he's got a real nice touch. Uh, he's mobile. He's kind of like a bigger version of Blake Jackson. Um, if, if you watched uh, Mary Harden Baylor, I know you did watch Mary Harden Baylor, so that's why I tried to give you something you could work with there. Appreciate but he's, that. yeah, he's six two, two hundred, um, and, and so my my guess, and this is a, off a very limited sample size, watching basically the Baldwin Wallace game the other day and kind of being in and out, seeing some of the series uh, that that Pullman played, Poorman played, and some that Fulford played. You know, folks in Alliance watch these guys in the preseason and, and they may see him in practice. So they, they may know a lot more about this, but uh, it looks just from, like I said, just from 
off the eye test that Fulford probably eventually emerges as the guy and, uh, and Mountain Union has another really good quarterback on its hands. And, you know, this is another situation where Mountain Union probably doesn't have to make a decision until week 13 or 14, right? No, I mean, well, yeah, I don't know. You make a decision when the decision makes itself. In essence, if one guy clearly outplays the other, then you go with him. If both guys are still neck and neck or if both guys are shaky enough, um, in the case of, of Whitewater, where you don't know which one you can trust, then, then you let them play it out. And if your program is good enough, as a case as a case may be, and, and Whitewater and and Wheaton and uh, and Mountain Union, you know that's kind of a luxury you you can afford because you're going to win most of your games, no matter which guy you have at quarterback. But when it comes to those real big key games, and Whitewater had one on Saturday, they're going to play another one this coming Saturday. You know they they'd like to they'd like to have a guy emerge sooner rather than later. I think Mountain Union, even though it's got Ohio Northern Heidelberg coming up, I think they can afford to to work theirs out over a longer period of time. Whitewater running the gauntlet right now, number two in NAIA this past week. Uh, they'll be facing uh, number eight, Platteville, and then uh, number five, Oshkosh, uh, the week after. Uh, those are very much on the beaten path. So let's uh, talk about some other things going on underneath the radar, perhaps off the beaten path a little bit. And my highlight is uh, Hamlin going 3-0 and for the first time since 1988. The Pipers defeated Gustavus Adolphus 42-40 to on Saturday. And now I'd say Hamlin's favored to be 5-1 and when they play St. Thomas in October, which would have been nearly unthinkable a couple of years ago or, you know, maybe even a few months ago. Uh, Hamlin, Hamlin now, they face Carlton and St. Olaf the next two weeks, followed by Concordia Moorhead. And anything less than 5-1 and one after that will be a disappointment. Uh, the big uh, total comes from Justin's Justice Justice Spriggs. It was not as difficult to say as I made it sound. <laughs> he threw for a school record 475 yards and six touchdowns. Uh, broke the school record for passing by 100 yards in the win on Saturday. I see, but that's a school record type number. I don't know if you right. remember a few, yes. few podcasts ago. Yeah, about Christopher Newport. Well, yeah, yeah. Hamlin, yeah, yeah, Hamlin's been playing football a little bit longer than uh, Christopher Newport has, but you know, over the course of the t- the period of time where both Hamlin and Christopher Newport were playing football, Hamlin was not very good. That's true, and and three seventy five was their school record. Yeah, uh, which which is not that kind of that doesn't seem like a school record number, uh, at least not in this day. Not in this four seventy five. That's pretty legit. Exactly. Off the beaten path highlights for me, uh, Colby beat Williams, Montclair State beat Rowan, and McDaniel beat Ursinus, all in the final seconds. The Profs and Red Hawks were kind of puttering along at 7-7 through three quarters before an interesting blocked punt for a touchdown by Rowan, and then a uh, 73-yard touchdown catch exchange uh, right back from, uh, from Montclair State. So it, it was kind of nothing going on this whole entire game. Then all of a sudden, touchdown on top of touchdown. And uh, with 49 seconds left, left in that game, Montclair State's John DiStefano scored the winner. The reason why that's big is because Rowan uh, takes its, uh, its first loss. And with Wesley down and, uh, you know, right now, Christopher Newport and Salisbury atop the end jack, there was maybe an opening there. And uh, right now, you know, Rowan's a game behind. Uh, I think the top highlight, the the top off the beaten highlight path, though, has to be the green terror of McDaniel snapping the 22-game losing streak dating from the first game of 2014 by scoring 10 points in the final minute. If you guys get a look at the play of the week reel, you'll see a couple of those shots in there, including the game-winning field goal and the ensuing celebration. I, I can't get enough of those. 
You could put you could put celebrations in there every week. I, I love those things. I don't know why. Uh, Breon Herbert has the 11-yard touchdown catch for McDaniel along the right sideline in the end zone. Then uh, Claude Richardson intercepts Salvatore Bello three plays later, and McDaniel kicks a game-winning field goal for the off-the-beaten-path highlight, the, the broken losing streak, and uh, certainly kind of a feel-good moment for the Green Terror. Let's see. Most surprising result from Saturday. Uh, Wheaton only beating Elmhurst 10-6 could certainly be on this list. So could uh, Christopher Newport having such a slow start and only beating TCNJ 17-0. But you mentioned Thomas Moore earlier, Keith, and that's one that really surprised me. If I told you Thomas Moore would hold Carnegie Mellon running back Sam Banger to 55 yards and would intercept Tartan's quarterback four times, wouldn't you picture a score more along the lines of 45-10 to rather than 20-16? to the Saints just converted one of those takeaways into points. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I left an opening there for you to talk and then closed it. I was going to answer yes. So. Oh, that's good. You didn't miss much. I appreciate that. Yeah, just one of those takeaways gets turned into points. And Saints, if nothing else, sure looked like they're having a letdown from the previous week's big win against W&J. For my most surprising result, honestly, Hamlin would have been a good candidate. I uh, wouldn't have expected them to beat Gustavus, even though the Pipers are on the rise. But how about Merchant Marine hanging 55 on Rochester? 403 rushing yards, 579 total yards. It's just not the type of numbers you think of uh, when it comes to Merchant Marine because they're, they're a triple option uh, offense. Rochester's been a four or five win team each year since 2009. Merchant Marine hasn't cracked 500 since 2003. So to the uninitiated, it looks like an even matchup of Liberty League teams, but instead it plays out like first place beating up on a cellar dweller. For my stat of the week, and we've mentioned a bunch of great stats so far, uh, I wanted to talk about strength of schedule. Not that we're going to start selecting playoff teams, uh, but it's also important for us when uh, looking at postseason awards. And, and I'll mention Joey Valdivia. He's a running back for Lake Forest who's run for 544 yards through four games. It sounds really good, right? Uh, it's 224 against Beloit, 146 against Carlton, 165 at Cornell, and then nine against Monmouth, which is why I always like to look game by game on players when I can. And this is a good demonstration of why uh, Monmouth won that game against Lake Forest on Saturday, 52 to six, and primarily by bottling up their uh, number one running back. Well, lack of offense uh, led to your stat of the week. It's going to lead to mine, too. I'm going back to that Colby Williams game on NESCAC opening weekend. The White Mules, by the way, that's a top 25 D3 mascot. They gained just uh, 239 yards, converted just four 16 third downs, averaged 3.3 yards per play, and 2.4 yards per rush on 46 carries. That's a lot of running, not a lot of yards being gained. But they won. Colby got a huge 13-yard Jack O'Brien to Ridener Arsenal completion on 4th and 10 on the final drive, and they were able to survive four turnovers with a 19-yard game-winning field goal with four seconds left. You can tell Keith doesn't cover Division Three basketball because if he did, he would know how to pronounce Arsenal, right? Yeah, I'm sure. You're right. I would guess. And if you don't get that reference, go find Grinnell basketball. And then, no, don't tell me that that's not basketball. We're not having that conversation. Um. Oh, I'm going to take my lumps here for uh, for a couple of minutes here. We're going to talk about quick hits. Uh, tough week for me this time around. I uh, I went off the beaten path for my picks, and I got beaten uh, pretty roundly for it. So I'm going to take my lumps. 
uh, on, let's see, not correctly picking a top 25 team to get upset, uh, not picking a team to get a sorely needed win, and not even picking an Empire 8 team to win. But, you know, why go with the safe picks? I could have picked Alfred like everybody else. I certainly knew Alfred was capable of beating Ithaca. I just wanted to think somebody else was capable of winning a game, too. Why go with the safe picks is a question that someone who's not going with the right picks would only, <laughs> would only ask. There you go. Thanks. Um, That's good. Speaking of the right picks, though, I think you see Adam Turr picking your team to lose a top 25. You, you see me picking it for some reason. They, they, we seem to be getting these right. You don't want to be that, that team, the most likely top 25 uh, team to get upset this week because we've been hitting them a lot this year. Uh, I, I hit it, Adam hit it, and our guests, Gene Schatz, each correctly picked a top 25 team to get upset on Saturday. Uh, Adam and I picked Wabash. Gene picked Delaware Valley. Two others picked Johns Hopkins, and Pat picked St. John Fisher. All of them played close games, so those were all uh, pretty decent picks and, uh, and a reason you should check out Quick Hits on Friday mornings on the site. Everyone also correctly picked a 3-0 team with, uh, with no top 25 votes to win on Saturday. I wanted to riff for just a second on our guest, Gene Schatz. Uh, Gene's son, Jason, played quarterback for uh, Wesley, one of those guys in between uh, the the uh, the long group of uh, All-Americans that have uh, been signal callers for the Wolverines. Uh, so I think Jason... The senior year was probably 2010, maybe 2011, something like that. Gene's still very much into Division Three football. Uh, last week, he was at both the uh, uh, Salisbury game and the Wesley game on Saturday. So just a shout-out to anybody who uh, goes and, and, and does a road trip because you know how we love our road trips for Division Three here at D3Football.com. And look, D3, so much, so concentrated in the Northeast and the Midwest and parts of the Mid-Atlantic that if you live in, in any of those areas, you, you know, you can stick a, well, nobody probably would do this with a protractor because who uses those anymore? <laughs> but you could draw, you could draw a circle on the map with a 200 mile radius or a two hour, three hour radius and get to, you know, a dozen games on Saturday. You, there'll always be something good in your area. You know, if you live in Illinois, you got stuff in each direction. If you live in Minnesota, or Wisconsin, or anywhere in New England, or New Jersey, or New York, there's oh, there's there's so many D3 games around. And the cool thing is, there's just no, you know, we we could sometimes sit sit on Saturdays and and watch a bunch of different games, but there's just no replacement for being there, experiencing the atmosphere. Um, Getting outside your own comfort zone, you may be used to just one um, game day atmosphere, and then you check out some other ones. Uh, you know, I used to kind of get annoyed, like, oh, yeah, sure, St. John's, greatest place to see a game, sure. But then you go there, and you're like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. You know, same with all the rivalry games, too. I mean, it really is cool. So uh, I respect what Gene does, and uh, I used to do it myself a lot more often than I do now, that's for sure. Uh, your kids are not old enough to teach you the difference between a protractor and a compass. I would use a compass to draw a radius, not a not a protractor. I was thinking like the the you poke the hole that's in the, the middle. That's, that's and the, the compass. Pencil? Yeah, is that that's is it really? Yeah. Remember, I was talking about eleventh grade math on uh, last week's podcast or the week before. This eleventh grade, eleven year old math. This is where I top out, man. Sixth grade math. Yeah, I did not. I did not know that. I, I did use a T square before computer aided drafting came along, though. So I was right on the cusp of both. You know, score me one point for that and take away a point for doing the compass. I could see that thing in my head though, with a pencil, a golf pencil. I don't even know how to react to the T square thing. Wow. Yeah, man. And you get that that vellum paper, and you anyway. We're getting way off on a tangent. 
off the beaten path. Your two-minute drill begins now. Thanks, Kenny. We needed that. Got to get back on track here. And let's talk about the WIAC, a perfect 7-0 on Saturday to finish the non-conference portion of his schedule on a high note. Conference went 13-5 versus Division Three opponents in non-conference play, 19-5 overall. And I have to think that's going to be a huge boost to their chances of getting a runner-up into the playoffs this year. Yeah, the WIAC has five of the 51 undefeated teams nationally, uh, but there are three conferences that have at least four of the 47 winless teams. That would be the ECFC, Mount Ida, Castleton, Anna Maria, and Norwich. Uh, the SCIAC, they have four 0-2 teams of um, Laverne, Cal Lutheran, Whittier, Occidental, and then, of course, because the NESCAC just started play last week uh, and there are 10 teams, half of them are, or five NESCAC teams are, are also winless. I would say this next item has gotten the most attention of any uh, lightning round slash two-minute drill entry ever. When I checked on Twitter yesterday to find out the uh, pronunciation of Barry wide receiver Ben Cerisi, I got all sorts of response from the uh, the Barry people. Uh, all I'm saying is about 15 seconds worth. The guy's got nine touchdown catches here for the uh, Vikings as they go to 4-0 uh, with that win that uh, Keith mentioned earlier against Sewanee. But it gets tougher for here for, for Barry as uh, Wash U, University of Chicago, and Hendricks are coming up next, and two of those three games are on the road. Misericordia, which is in its fifth year as a program and only has three wins, nearly got its first win this season. But after Lycoming scored to go ahead 28-24, the Cougars went three and out, and then the Warriors killed the final six minutes of clock, and Misericordia still waits for its first win this season and its fourth in program history. Yeah, when I went through that play-by-play, Keith, I saw that they killed off the last six minutes, and I thought, oh... Keith's going to pick that because he loves uh, you love when the games end like that. Well, you know, but it stinks if Uh-oh. you're the, the, the offensive team. You give the ball back with six minutes left. You're like, ah, we went three and out. It's all right. We'll get another possession, maybe two if we're lucky. And, and they just didn't get the ball back. People griping about Linfield still being in the top ten at one and one. Hey, people, I'm for, far more concerned about Linfield only having played two games so far this season than about where they're ranked or, you know, where uh, you particular set of purple fans think they should be ranked. Uh, playing nine games, having two buys in the first uh, four weeks of the season just isn't a good look. And uh, I didn't set the timer this week, but uh, we're at 2.04, and our two-minute drill just ran out of time. Oh, so don't make me kill my last one. Look, weird moment in the, in the St. Lawrence RPI game, if I saw it correctly. The engineers got a late first-half fumble return touchdown taken off the board because of a sideline violation. RPI goes on to lose that game by six. Means get back, coaches. Re-up your contracts. In football, it's the get-back coach, and in uh, basketball, it's the timeout coach, the uh, the one designated coach who comes over to the table to find out how many timeouts we have left. Yeah, it's the same three fulls and one thirty that you had the last three times you asked. Thanks for checking. Coming up next week, we got some big games. Keith, did I mention that uh, Wisconsin Whitewater is playing Wisconsin Platteville? Did I did that come up? It did come up. That's a game. There's some pretty, you know, these now that all three of these teams are in the top. Oh gosh. All three in the top eight. Is that right? Whew. Yes. That's going to be some key battles there. What if they all go If they all go nine and one and with the strength of schedule stuff I just mentioned, we have three WIAC teams in the playoffs? It's certainly not. It's not unprecedented. Three teams from one conference have made it before. The Empire 8 did that once. Um, 
The weird thing about that is I don't know how likely 9-1 is because Stevens Point and Lacrosse look kind of decent this year. So it may be, may be tougher to get to 9-1 because you may have one oddball result in there that throws everything off. Especially, yes, especially Stevens Point. Uh, Central against Dubuque, uh, uh, you know, games that are going to help decide uh, this conference, the Iowa Conference. Dubuque's been playing really well. Central, you know, they beat some... Uh, more higher notoriety opponents that's that's not the best term for that um but uh, you know so they vaulted their way into the rankings but Dubuque can uh, jump right over them with a win on Saturday yeah and and as a voter you're, you're looking for those head-to-head games uh Central had the win over Whitworth but I really like to see it against Dubuque same thing Dubuque uh went went west or played a team from the west I don't remember if they went west this year uh against Pacific but um they went but yeah you, yeah, you want to see that head-to-head win. Uh, a couple of other games uh, by teams who we had questions about who won in uh, less than impressive fashion, right? Wheaton goes to Illinois Wesleyan on Saturday. Thomas Moore goes to Westminster of Pennsylvania. Those are you know two trips and games that we would have circled earlier in the season but uh, even have a, a bigger eye on now. Yeah, huge chance for Westminster to, to break through. A team that's kind of flown under the radar, uh, went 8-2 and two last season, but, but just... Because they haven't won big games, haven't been a playoff team, haven't been a top 25 team, not too many people know about them. You know, you beat Thomas Moore, you know, we'll start to get a little recognition. West, uh, the stat boy would say 9-2 and two for Westminster. They won an ECAC bowl game as well. Uh, oh, are you counting that? Okay. Well, I mean, it's on the it, – it's there. Uh, you know, it's, it's on the record. Someone's going to go and say, hey, we've won 10 games in a row. Are we the longest winning streak in Division Three? No. That's a reference from Twitter from uh, earlier on Sunday. Never mind. Um, let's see. Uh, w- there was something else I, wa- I that caught my eye. Merchant Marine at Hobart, a little more interesting than we uh, might have thought it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that, that triple option is working really well. Uh, big challenge for Hobart's defense, or, or maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be like old-time Hobart Merchant Marine games. Well, and similarly, St. Lawrence plays Springfield. Yeah, well, more triple option there and, and, and more great defense. St. Lawrence uh, finally gave up some points this week, but uh, but it wasn't too much of a, of a stress against uh, RPI. So uh, coming up, uh, of course, later this week, uh, check back on uh, Monday afternoon uh, for the uh, play of the week. Uh, there were some pretty good videos out there. At, uh, one play that uh, I think is probably head and shoulders above the rest, or at least helmet above the rest. Um, so look for that on Monday afternoon. Uh, of course, we'll have our Around the Region columns uh, throughout the day on Tuesday and Wednesday. All seven of them, we've had you know seven quality uh, columns now for several weeks in a row. It's great to see. Um, and then, of course, uh, Adam Turr back with his Around the Nation column on Thursday. Uh, we'll also have uh, the uh, Team of the Week. That's our weekly honor roll, so sports information directors. Nominations for those are due by 8 p.m. Eastern time on Monday nights. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 155 for the week of September 26, 2016. Thanks for listening and uh, tune in for the rest of that coverage I mentioned throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it, leaving a review for us in iTunes, Podkicker, Stitcher, whatever podcast thing you listen to. Or, you know, if you're just uh, if you one of the people who listens to it on the page, on the blog, that's awesome. Thank you for listening. We appreciate that. And thanks for following Division Three Football on d3football.com. Is, the- is Podkicker a real thing? I never... Yeah, Podkicker is what I use. I, I don't know why I uh, use Podkicker, but that's what I got. Yeah, I always hear everyone say Stitcher and uh, TuneIn and and all those ones. <laughs> iTunes, obviously. I'd never heard of Podkicker. I thought you made that up. <laughs> uh, no, that's a that's a real thing. It's uh, and it's on screen one on my phone because uh, I have listened now to about 
10 podcasts that don't involve Division Three football. Um, let's see. Uh, I should mention that the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests, Glenn Caruso, Michael Alada, Kevin Bullis, uh, for their time on this edition of our show. And, of course, to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. I've got to get the originator out of the script because I can never say it correctly. Uh, but that's my co-host, Keith and Bill, and he was the originator. The guy who originated the thing. Uh, catch us every week now from uh, now through December 19th and then monthly in the off season. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and your Instagram posts because that's where you use hashtags. And use that hashtag because that's the one that people follow for Division 3 football. That was very concise. It's not concise at all, but we're under an hour, so that's good. Yeah, except for the part about being concise. Great. Right.